Our epistle reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, and beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord, and these are the words of the Apostle Paul, that dynamic preacher and teacher and leader from the earliest days of Christianity. And this is Paul in peak Paul mode. In his excitement about this message of unity, he's a little forgetful. Who did I baptize back in the day? But even his critique of beautiful rhetoric is rhetorically beautiful. He's just begun a letter to this community that he helped to found with a lovely introduction. Hi, I love you because I love Jesus and you love Jesus. You're doing great. I'm grateful for you. And then he gets right to the point. And the point for Paul is this. You all are arguing about some pretty unimportant things. And I'm writing to remind you that those things really don't matter. What matters is the one thing that we all hold in common, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not who baptized you, not which preacher you like the most, not which doctrines you prefer, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Paul writes to a people in a very specific time and place, the Roman province of Corinth, middle of the first century. And that context is important, but Paul's words here, as with all the words in our scripture, speak to us across time and space. Because we know that the Spirit is always moving, is always present among us. And so I invite you to think today about what it means that the Spirit is calling us to think about this, this one thing that we all hold in common, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I grew up in upstate South Carolina, and from as early as I can remember, I knew a central truth about what it means to be a South Carolinian. And the truth is this, you can know everything you need to know about a person from how they answer the question, tigers or gamecocks. You ask that question, you know what you need to know. 
I'm not a sports person, never have been. I've come to terms with it. But I, even I knew from early in childhood that there was something deeply important about whether a person was a Clemson or Carolina fan. And where I come from, Carolina means Gamecocks, not Tar Heels. I'm sorry. Then I'm not going to get into the specifics of what exactly you could know about a person from how they answer that question, nor am I going to tell you my family's affiliation because I don't want any angry emails tomorrow. But I am going to tell you that whenever I think about things like group identity, I think about that Clemson-Carolina rivalry and what it was like at my middle school the Friday before the Clemson-Carolina game. Lots of exciting middle school trash talk hallways full of orange and garnet. You get the picture. And you probably have your own version of this phenomenon. When you think about your early experiences with group loyalty, I imagine something comes to mind. It might be a sports rivalry, but it might be something bigger than that. We're in an election year in this country, whether or not you're already sick of thinking and talking about it, and I think it's going to be a big one. And perhaps you think about political affiliation in kind of the same way that my middle school thought about our sports affiliation. Deep down, do you think you know all there is to know about a person according to their political preferences? It seems to be a mark of our humanness that we search for ways to divide ourselves according to certain parts of our identity. There's just something about humans and dividing ourselves into different camps. It's true today as in all past ages, and we know from Bible texts like this one today that it was true for the very earliest Christian communities also. Factions, groups, camps, whatever you call them, Christians are not immune to divisiveness or to letting our group affiliations shape our beliefs about ourselves and others and the world around us. This reality is what the Apostle Paul identifies as he writes to this community of Christians that he loves and that he helped to establish. He starts this portion of his letter with his thesis. He wants these beloved Christ followers to be united in their Christian discipleship, to be of the same mind in their identity as Christians who have been claimed by God in the waters of baptism. But, he writes, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my siblings. Paul has heard from this woman, Chloe, an important leader in the community, that there are disagreements, which really shouldn't surprise Paul because his world was no more immune to disunity than we are today. But what bothers Paul here is not that there's disagreement. Rather, it's the nature of these disagreements that's discouraging. Chloe has reported that there are factions beginning to bubble up within the Christian community at Corinth, and they seem to be based on people's allegiances to particular leaders. People are beginning to align themselves with the person who baptized them or the person whose teaching and leadership they like the most, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, rather than Jesus Christ. We can probably imagine what those arguments in the Christian Corinthian community looked like, because if we're honest, we've probably seen it happen in our own communities. It is easy to look to a leader or a group we admire and begin to align ourselves with them. 
And this isn't altogether a bad impulse. In the Presbyterian tradition, we believe that leadership in the church is just one of the many ways that we can faithfully respond to God's call. And so when skilled and called and faithful leaders live into the Spirit's movement in a community, it's a beautiful and faithful thing. But when we begin to align ourselves with leaders we follow or groups that we follow more than the one who calls us to a life of discipleship, we've forgotten the roots of our identity. We might put Paul's words into our own context by saying something like this, I belong to Dr. Shetler, or I belong to Sid Batts, or I belong to Neil, or Dolly, or Donna, or anyone, instead of I belong to Christ. I've not been here long enough to discern whether or not this is a big issue for our particular community, but putting Paul's thoughts into our own world does bring things a little closer to home. In this period of transition, as we patiently wait for the next PNC update, and as we wonder whose portrait will one day hang in the Virginia Gilmer room, we have a special opportunity to examine ourselves and see where our real commitments and loyalties lie. If we're honest with ourselves, do we sometimes put too heavy an emphasis on things that don't really matter as much as our core commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we sometimes operate a little bit like my middle school on the week before the Clemson Carolina game, just digging deeper into our entrenched beliefs and affiliations? During our revival time last fall, we were invited even more deeply into this opportunity for examining the core of our call to discipleship. We thought about how if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to live that way, plugging into this community through worship and small groups and giving and service to the neighborhood and world. These are not peripheral concerns. They are central to who we are. So Paul continues with some rhetorical questions. Has Christ been divided? Was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? We know how his audience is meant to answer. No, of course Christ was not divided into little pieces. Of course Paul was not the one crucified for us or the one in whose name we were baptized. No, it wasn't in the name of Paul or any other leader, but in the name of Jesus, the God with us. Paul is helping the people in Corinth to see the absurdity of their arguments. He's forcing them to envision Christ's literal physical body fragmented into as many pieces as the factions that exist in their community. He's encouraging them to look at themselves and see that even if they don't realize it, they might be living in such a way that makes it seem like they worship their leaders or the groups they're a part of more than the living God. These quarrels and disagreements stand in stark contrast to the image of the church as Christ's body. In that image, each part of the body has a particular function. The eye does what eyes do. The foot does what feet do. When one suffers, all suffer. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. The body of Christ is not a divided body. It's a body with members who differ in nearly every way, with people of diverse skills and gifts. But it is one body with one foundation, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And as soon as that foundation shifts, as soon as the central focus of its members wanders to someone or something else, the community ceases to be the most faithful version of itself. Because it is not Paul or anyone else who was crucified for us, but Christ. For this reason, in a moment of humor, Paul admits he's glad he didn't baptize very many people in the Corinthian community. That way, nobody can claim that their allegiance is to Paul over Jesus. Even baptism, the central sign of God's grace, has been affected by these divisions, and Paul wants no part of it. Ever the dynamic writer, Paul ends with this. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the heart of the matter. This is what Paul has been working towards this whole time. The Christian community in Corinth has lost sight of the truest commitment they should have, which is to Jesus Christ. And this is not just a true commitment, it is a simple one in the best sense. Paul is clear that when he received the call to proclaim the gospel, it was not a call to use complicated language or impressive rhetorical strategies like the famous leaders of his day. It was a call to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in all its profound beauty and power and simplicity. It's easy here to keep reconstructing the world in which the Corinthian Christians were operating with its particular histories and customs and contexts without examining ourselves and our own communities. But to do so would be to miss out on the witness of scripture and the spirit throughout the age. As much as the early Christians in Corinth struggled to remain faithful to this central call of Christian discipleship, we struggle too. As much as that community missed the mark by identifying a little too closely with secondary identities and leaders and groups, we miss the mark too. But the call to faithful Christian discipleship is a continual one, and thanks be to God we receive grace again and again and again, and we are called forth to live into the call again and again and again. As often as we see the waters in the baptismal font, we remember that Christ has claimed us in those waters. As often as we taste the bread and juice at communion, we remember that Christ has nourished us in that meal. As often as we hear the word read and proclaimed and sung in our worship spaces, we remember that Christ has been present from all eternity and will be present with us until the close of the age. Our worship here and our life together here offers us these continual reminders of our call, first and foremost, as disciples of the resurrected Christ. When we lose sight of that central identity as we are bound to, we have these reminders that draw us back again and again. And so as we go out from this place into all the other places where we live our lives, I pray that we might remember in a new way what it means for us to belong 
to Christ. We may be a die-hard, never-miss-a-game Tar Heel or Blue Devil. We may call ourselves a Republican or a Democrat. We may really resonate with one church leader or group over another, but we are all followers of the risen Christ. Our commitment to the life of discipleship is one that comes before all our other affiliations and identities, as central as they may seem to who we are. And this commitment ought to guide our living more than anything else does. I'll leave us this morning with words from our Presbyterian brief statement of faith. In life and in death, we belong to God. Through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, we trust in the one triune God, the Holy One of Israel, whom alone we worship and serve. May it be so. Amen.